what's no, happening. No, we've in the got world. books, we've got dates. The world's awful. Yeah. The world's bad. bad. Read comics. Comics are good. Comics are going great. There's so many good things in comics right now. Van Calf applications just dropped. Yeah. Gotta check your email. I don't have time to check email. I know. I know. Everyone was on the edge of their seat, but Cloudscape Comics got approved. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll be there. I'm really excited for it. Ah. I applied like last minute, four (laughs) hours before the applications closed. So it'll be really great (laughs) to uh, to be there. Oh, I'm super psyched. I'm gonna check my email in the middle of a podcast. Do it, do it. We get to hear the live reaction of Jonathan. Uh. (laughs) I forgot that the emails were going out today, and I uh, was checking my email as I was leaving work, and like in the break room, I audibly gasped, like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) email, and everyone turned and was like, wait, what's going on? I was like, nothing, it's fine. Yeah, I see the reactions come up on Twitter, (laughs) and then it's like, oh shit, like, drop everything, and (laughs) see what's going on going on but yeah that's exciting calf calf i'm only doing one calf though one calf yeah single calf yeah. single calf uh, no no double calf over here yeah i'm, I'm d double calf today this year that's gonna be a hard like week after week do, do, two weekends back to well, back see originally when You've i been accepted when to I... exhibit the van calf congratulations john okay that's see, awesome when i originally realized i wasn't accepted to TCAF, I was really bummed out, and then I thought, wait a minute, now I don't have to worry about back-to-back crazy yeah. indie con convention madness. Yeah. You know, maybe next year I can apply to TCAF and not worry so much about VanCAF, you yeah. know? So, we'll see. Yeah, woo! Oh my god, so VanCAF's gonna be a huge party. Oh yeah. Party, party, party. Yeah. And there's a lot of interesting out-of-towners coming as well. Really? Yeah. I haven't looked. Who's who's coming? I, I believe uh, Mel Gilman is coming, and nice, I believe nice. that. Uh, yeah. Oh no, I can't remember her name. But there's like there's a few people that I've been wanting to meet that are that are coming to Van Camp for the first time. Uh, do you know if Blue Delaquanti's coming? I don't know. Okay, because I bought her second book last time because I thought I already had the first one and I didn't. Oh no. <laughs> no I can't read that book until I read the first one. Oh, do you want to oh. borrow my copy? I want to own, own it. I want to own it. You can own it, but if you're eager to read it, you can borrow my copy. Uh, that's okay. It's, um, it's in my to read pile. I'll get to it mm-hmm. at approximately Van Calf time. I mean, honestly, I bought volume two at the last Van Calf. I think I finally got to it in my to read pile at this point. So uh-huh. It's so good. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. really solid. Well, volume one is, yeah. I think we should wait a little longer before we start. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we should wait as long as we are willing to wait for trades. <laughs> I was actually going to ask if anyone knows if uh, Linda Medley will be at VanCalf by any chance. That was a really good question. If I had the internet in front of me, I would look it up. <laughs> I hope she will be. <laughs> is, is she local? Uh, she's no. down in Portland. Oh, oh, okay. I think. Not too far then. Do you know? Yeah, she's West Coast anyways. I, I hope it wasn't just a convention fever dream, but I think I actually met her at Emerald City. Really? And I, oh. I said, I was like, oh, if you ever want to go to VanCalf, it's great, you know? 
So I, ho- I hope I'm remembering that correctly because you know how it is, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. It's all a blur. It's really yes. intense. Well, it's, a, it's Planet Con, so maybe it was another convention. Yeah, it could have been a completely different convention. It could have been yeah. anywhere. If only you could actually physically move between them so easily, as quickly as you could mentally move between them, it would save on so much travel and shipping time. Yeah, really would. So, so why are we talking about Linda Medley right now, guys? Oh, uh, well... Um, what is our book this week? We are reading Castle Waiting by Linda Medley. We're reading volume one this week, and next episode we'll be reading volume two. Should I say who we are? Should we do character... How oh, do we do yeah. this? Should, it's yes, been so do, long. No, we should do character um, revealing questions. I, for one, have been waiting forever to review oh my this God. book. Jeffrey, <laughs> <shut> <laughs> I warned you. I uh, warned you there'd be waiting puns. Yeah. It's not like puns if you're just saying the word over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there needs to be more weight to the jokes that you're bringing to the table. All right, all right, all right. Don't out-pun the pun master. Ugh, That's God. true. Okay. I'm so um, what you're saying is I'm not making the pun blog. <laughs> I made my pun blog when I was like 19 and I have not updated it since, guys. I'm very much not 19 anymore. Um, yeah, it's been a while. I think I missed a couple episodes, but I'm here. I'm Kate Ross and I'm going to ask some character a, a character revealing question and y'all are going to tell me who you are. Ooh. So my character revealing question uh, which I accidentally wrote down in my notebook as character building question. <laughs> so well, I guess it depends on the question. It depends on the kind of question. And put hair on your chest. Uh, but do you have a favorite legend or fairy tale? Ooh. Hmm. Uh, I have an answer. All right. Who are um, you? What's your I'm, name? I'm Jonathan. Uh, and I'm not sure that this counts as a fairy tale, but when I was in an anthology that claimed to be full of fairy tales, this is the story that I picked. Uh, I am a huge fan of Mulan, and when I was in the Cautionary Fables and Fairy Tales anthology, I found the, um, I always describe it as being the original version of Mulan, but it's actually not. It's the earliest still existing version. Uh, And I translated it into English and turned it into a comic, and I love that story to bits. And if, as soon as you get me started talking about Mulan, I'll never shut up about it. (laughs) Nice. Who are you? I am Jeff Ellis. Uh, I should talk directly into my mic. Uh, I'm Jeff Ellis, and uh, I finally thought of the legend that I wanted to mention. Um, So there was actually a Pacific Northwest legend that I always remembered as a kid. In fact, I remember I kind of committed it to memory, and then I would, like, tell it to anyone who was out in the woods with me uh, (laughs) when we came across a Douglas, I think it's a Douglas fir pine cone. I can't remember the right tree now, but there's a kind of pine cone which has these really noticeable, like, extra extensions on the pine cone. And the legend goes that there were these mice, and they were messing around, and uh, they displeased Raven. And then when Raven came by, they tried to hide in these pine cones, and then Raven turned them into wood. And if you look at these pine cones, it kind of looks like little mice butts poking out of this pine cone. So that whole thing is like it's this origin that these mice got turned into wood and now you see them in these pine cones all the time. And I don't, I don't, know, I don't know why. I just love that story. And uh, it, it, you really do see these little tiny mice hiding in a pine cone when you look at it. <laughs> I've probably just butchered this legend, but I don't know. I, I've always enjoyed that one. Very cool. Uh, I'll go next. Yeah, who are you? I'm Jam. 
And uh, when I was a kid, I really liked reading fairy tales, especially the more obscure one. I remember I had uh, the big blue book of fairy tales, which was, I don't know where it came from, but it had fairy tales that seemed closer to the source that I had never heard of in like any of the princess you know, movies, the Disney stuff. Like, I'd never seen these retold, and I, I really liked that. And I also really remember liking Aesop's fables, the ones with, like, all the animals. But the one that sticks out for me, and I'm not sure why, is Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> and I think it's something about the weaving the straw into gold was always such really vivid imagery to me that I really, I really enjoyed. So Rumpelstiltskin for me. I'm Jess, and I also love Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> I remember in uh, children's storybooks, because I had like a beautiful illustrated book about Rumpelstiltskin, he was always this like curly, evil, yeah. like long-fingered <laughs> goblin man, and it's like, with that sometimes, big nose. Sometimes he was hairy, oh, and he was yeah. like this like little thing, and he was going to take your kid. Like, that's, yeah. that's scary. <laughs> it's like a really high-stakes story. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to pick. I like a lot. Um, I did uh, medieval studies for a little bit, and we read this incredible poem called The Fairy Queen, um, which I, I might have my facts wrong, so I, I hope they're right. I want to do some fact checking, but I think it's the longest poem in English and it's unfinished, but it has this, uh, it's this like wacky, incredible story with a lot of um, religious allegory. So at the time it's a medieval story, it's very political. And I just remember this evil Catholic wizard called Archimago, who's like dropping all these hints that he's evil throughout. And our, our hero, Red Cross, he's supposed to represent England, which is why his name is Red Cross, battling him, and uh, just all these amazing adventures and places they go to. So that's one of my favorites. Rad. Yeah. Nice. And uh, I'll go last. I'm Kay, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, we had these series of books called the children's hour and they're each different volumes that like oh yeah i think i know that yeah, one, yeah. they have like the red covers and each volume is like stories of travel like um non like those things i think in one of those there's this great short story about like the origin of cats which was that like cats came from dragons because a dragon was basically like domesticated by this village and they kept treating it nicely and saying <laughs> nice things and feeding it milk and eventually all its scales fell off and when the scales fell off there was fur underneath and then it like became the first cat basically <laughs> i like that yeah <laughs> now i'm imagining dragons as being giant cats but with scales that's a nice thing to imagine <laughs> 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 all right, so maybe I'll give us a bit of background to Castle Waiting and Linda Medley. So uh, Linda Medley is an American illustrator, cartoonist, author. She has worked as a penciler, a painter, a colorist, and a sculptor. Uh, I'm getting all my facts from Wikipedia. Um, she penciled for Justice League America and Doom Patrol in the 90s. She mm. colored for Image as well in the 90s on Death Blow and DC's Batman and Robin adventures for a year or two. Uh, and she's illustrated children's books, although when I was trying to find more info on that, um, maybe I'm just not as good as Google as I, uh, as I think I am, but like I couldn't pull up much on that. But yeah, she's, she's worked on a lot of things and um, Castle Waiting is probably her biggest like self-directed project, I think. Castle Waiting was originally published in 1996 with the help of a Xeric grant, which ah. mm. one of the trade writers, not going to say who, <coughs> also uh, published something with the help of a Xeric grant. And it was, it was, I believe, a single issue that was the Curse of the Brambley Hedge, I think, which is the beginning of Castle Waiting Volume 1. 
and then uh, seven issues were self-published between 1997 and 98, and then Jeff Smith's cartoon books published four issues in 2000, and then she went back to self-publishing, and then Fantagraphics picked it up and published a bunch of issues, and then we got the nice hefty books that it is now. Castle Waiting and Linda Medley won a 1998 Eisner Award for Best Ongoing Story and Talent Deserving of Wider Recognition. I love these books and I feel like most people I know haven't read them, so I'm still on the like, yeah, talent deserving of wider recognition, still. Yeah. Recently there is in the works uh, Castle Waiting Volume 3, but Linda Medley's kind of had a bit of a rough go of it, um, so hopefully we can link to her Patreon. Um, sure. Mm. Uh, because she's, uh, hopefully, if you've read these books, you also feel like she's a really great uh, artist and voice and well worth supporting. I've been waiting for Castle Waiting Volume 3 for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to see it happen. It's kind of some background on that. Yeah, my, my personal background. I was going to email you guys some like supplementary material. This is just a photo <laughs> of me at 13 reading Castle Waiting <laughs> in the grade 7 portable. We can, um, <laughs> we can put that in the uh, in the notes. Sure. And then Facebook reminded me recently where it does, it does that thing where it's like, remember things. Um, <laughs> and it like showed me a Facebook post from a billion years ago that was just like two sentences that was like, I'm dead waiting for Castle Waiting Volume 2. So I guess that's when <laughs> Castle Waiting Volume 2 came out and I was really excited for it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I picked up Castle Waiting, I think, when I was 13 and immediately fell in love and tried to share it with my friends and some of them were not as into it as me. Because <laughs> uh, 13 year olds are weird. But yeah. I love this book a lot, and I uh, would love to hear all of your thoughts, because I think only one other person here read it before. It was me, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I read it when I was about the same age, um, and it was amazing to reread. I still love it. In fact, I think I appreciate it even more now, just with some more, like, artistic experience, and I did those, like, medieval studies courses, and it was amazing. It held up so well, and uh, I just love it. I think it's great. It's one of my favorites. I wasn't quite sure what to expect going into this. I actually read one of the single issues in like the 90s. Uh, this was at a point where I was like interested in what existed outside of the world of superheroes, but not investing a lot of time in exploring that. But my local comic store had like one shelf that was, here's the shelf that's not superheroes. And I remember <laughs> there being a castle waiting issue. And like, it's the kind of story that you can't really get a lot from a single issue. Like you really need to trade. So I didn't it didn't catch me at the time. But reading it now, like I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh it's not a typical story structure. It's not the type of thing I'm used to reading. Uh and maybe it's not the kind of thing I would uh sort of naturally gravitate to, but uh I liked a lot about it and I think it's incredibly well put together. Uh there were a few points where I was like kind of Oh, when do we get to the end of this part? And uh, when do we get back to the main characters? But part of that is because I cared about the main characters. I wanted to know more about them and less about like the the characters three steps removed from the main characters. Mm. But yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I liked it. And I'm actually really surprised to hear that she worked in superhero comics because as much as like the drawing style is like very technically proficient, 
this is not a superhero style. So I just had assumed this is like really, really, really high quality, like indie 90s stuff hmm. with no connection to the quote unquote mainstream at all. And that's interesting that I was wrong about that. I see, I didn't know, uh, I didn't actually look up much about Linda Medley when I started reading this, but now that you say she worked for superhero comics, I. I see that a lot, actually. I see, like, a real technical drafts person who could, like, you know, execute... I could see this being adapted to a successful superhero uh, house style. I could see that. I could see the Justice League being rendered like this, you know? And I would say, yeah, the art is, like, probably my number one with this. I didn't really know what to expect when I started reading it, but, like, immediately the art really took me in. I think she's an amazing artist. The character designs, the the execution of all the the paneling was really really excellent and uh i also really liked all the watercolors in between like those little watercolor sort of pauses in between chapters i thought well, those were really beautiful so, uh, i don't have i those think in we should talk edition. about the different editions we're reading oh, sorry. because like <laughs> i don't think i had that in my digital edition either oh no wait maybe i did okay oh okay i had it in my edition they're really cool oh there we go i think um, i've never seen them before yeah, so... That is really awesome. I'm reading, <laughs> like, the hardcover that I got, like, over, well, ten-ish years ago that is falling apart and taped together with masking tape, and it does not have any color in it. Yeah, see, I didn't... It, this is the problem with comicsology is I took for granted that there's color illustrations in between the black and white pages where in publishing it wouldn't make sense necessarily to add color inserts, so apparently, Jess, yours has color inserts. Mm -hmm. hmm. So I guess they maybe re-released it with color inserts at some point, but that would add expense to the, the printing. So probably for Comixology, it's easy to add that, where maybe for a lot of these other editions, it's cheaper to just keep it black and white. Uh, they're certainly not part of the main story. They're just sort of little art pieces that space out the chapters, which I thought, I don't know, just added a nice atmosphere to the reading experience. I mean, I don't know, but do you think they could be like covers from when the original um, oh, issues were coming out. That actually they very well could be covers from the original issues. That could very well be what, what these are. That makes sense. I feel like they added something for me um, just because the, the style that they're drawn in is so specifically medieval European manuscript style. Mm. Some of them are drawn, some of them aren't, but some of them are drawn in this very specific manuscript style. Jeff's just holding one up right Sorry, now. I, 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 this is very, very good for a podcast. If you like this fantastic <laughs> yeah. illustration. Um, I'll um, take a screenshot. We can put it in the notes. Yeah, there, there was this um, interesting uh, one that's basically of a crucifixion that's in the medieval manuscript style, and it kind of added a dimension to the, the story for me, though, and like the idea that there's all of these like very historical influences in the book. It solidified it for me more. Mm. Um, and like these references, I was like, oh yeah, like this. This isn't just me. Like this actually is a reference to like this medieval tale or event or art style but that's just me <laughs> I, I found your illustration Jess so. for context for oh, our other okay. trade waiters okay. yeah, that yeah. Mine. do you have a page reference for that? page 323 so did you like it Jeff? oh sorry, uh, yeah we got sidetracked by the art so I really like the art um, I think the world is really fascinating in fact I have to say it wasn't until like the end of volume 2 where I really realized how much this was retelling classic fables like the intro you had cinderella and i followed that but oh, was sleeping beauty. Or sorry, sleep, sorry that, yeah sleeping beauty is the right sorry. it followed sleeping beauty and then 
I sort of thought like it was deviating from that and going in different directions. But then by the end of the book, I was like, oh, I must have missed some of the references because like there was a seven like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs reference that went right past me. So yeah, the idea of mashing up history and fantasy was like really fascinating. And I think in the times that we're living in, I really enjoyed reading a story where everybody is like working together as best they can. And even when there's people that they have trouble dealing with at certain points, like everyone just tries their best to like get along and work as a unit. And uh, I don't know, it's just everyone's just kind of trying to be nice to each other for the most part. And I think that was good. At the same time, which is like almost a contradictory statement, I would say that maybe the, the problem I had sometimes in the reading is I didn't feel there was a lot at stake in that at no point did I ever really believe any of the characters were truly in danger. Like, I just sort of was like, oh, I know this is going to work out. They're going to be fine. Like, when the... I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but like in the in the, in the the side story with the, the nun and, and being in the circus and escaping from the circus with the other uh, bearded woman, which is a great overall, just the concept is like so cool and original. But like, while they're running away from the carnival guy... I just was like, yeah, they're going to make it. Like, they're not they're not going to get caught. Nothing bad is going to happen to them. They're going to get to safety. And I guess I just didn't... It didn't hold me in suspense because I knew, like, they're going to be fine. And, like, there's a scene later where they're in town and they get, they get robbed. And I just was like, yeah, it's going to work out. They're going to get their money back or someone's going to... Like, no one's going to get hurt. It's going to be fine. And, and so, in a certain sense, like, yeah, it's nice that it's a story where, like, no one's going to get hurt. Everything's going to be fine. But I guess I, I, sometimes in the reading, I felt it dragged because I also was like, well, I know everything's going to work out. So why don't we just shorten it up? Because like, we're, you guys are going to get, you're going to get there. You're going to get to the castle. It's going to be fine. So we don't need eight pages getting to the castle. We can do three pages of getting to the castle. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to echo that sentiment. So uh, I thought there was a lot to like in this book. I thought like the art was really interesting and... The setting was great. I thought it was really well executed, but I think this was just a book that was profoundly not for me. It never clicked with me. I, you know, I felt I was being dragged through it most of the time. <laughs> I, I didn't care about anything that was going on. I don't like medieval settings. And so I just, I, I, I didn't like it. And, but I think it's not for the fault of the book at all. I think the book is really well put together, really strong. And like, I can see how this would click with other people. But yeah, it's like, uh, it <laughs> sailed right past me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, it is um, it is almost like a slice of life story. Uh, um, uh, I don't think so, because no. I read a lot of slice of life, mm -hmm. and I like slice of life a lot. But I think I, I, similar to Jeff, I really didn't like this meandering story style of like, we're all just kind of hanging out and telling stories from our past. Like that structure really yeah. didn't jive with me. I, I guess for slice of life, and I could be totally wrong in the terminology, because I know that's like a specific term. Um, you know, there's sort of plots where they need to repair their roof because it's leaky. Scenes of people like just eating and telling stories and... Um, trying to think of some other sort of regular day-to-day -day things where they're talking about like the economy of the grounds like oh how do you make money like there's a lot of like business references and uh you know yeah. like buying a mill and um I, I think it's sort that, of like day-to-day -day, like that that feeds into the kind of the history nerd thing yeah. I feel like it's like maybe John not to call you a history nerd necessarily oh, yeah, but can totally okay. <laughs> as a history nerd hopefully you can speak to this but yeah. I I am not a history nerd uh -huh. and so for me I'm like I don't know 
Yeah, <laughs> no, like, I was going to say, like, one of the things that I, I think pushed this from a story that I don't typically gravitate to at all into a story that I really appreciated was that I can tell how much historical background is, like, put into this. Like, all kinds of, like, there are lots and lots of different stories where someone has said, let's do fairy tales, but, like, with this, or some kind of twist. And usually I don't like those kind of stories at all. But I think uh, the this story is that, but with, like, full respect for the source material, which is not something I see very often. So, and not just in, like, the hi historical aspect of it. Like, there's lots of things, like, it actually has some kind of understanding of, like, medieval economics and, like, the serfdom system. I'm sorry, my, my brain is mushed today. Um, but, like, the serfdom system, like, most fantasy stories, quote-unquote, have, like, no interest in that whatsoever. And this story is, like, no, this is a medieval story. It takes place in, like, a specific time period. It's not in a vague, mysterious past. So it's going to actually, like, have a lot of that in it. But it also has a lot of the the tone of the original fairy tales. Like, when these fairy tales were all written down, there's, like, certain certain ways that they structure stories and certain things that are just assumed to be true that are also assumed to be true in this. Like, one of the things that I noticed about this was uh, when we're talking about the, the bearded nuns, uh, there's the one... Uh, it's been a while since I read this book now, but there was the one who was from... Um, uh, was it Egypt? Or some somewhere in the Middle East, anyway. Well, this was the origin of the the patron saint. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. original, the original sisters were so, all yeah. from the Middle so East. So they said she was from Egypt, but she wasn't necessarily from Egypt. She was from somewhere in the Middle East. But there's this this sort of like tone of like uh, Orientalism to that chapter, where the Middle e Middle East is this sort of mysterious, vaguely understood region, but that there's also like a lot of respect for the region and the culture in medieval Europe because like people in the Middle East have more stuff and more wealth and a longer history. So like, and that's something you can find in medieval fairy tales that you don't see a lot of in like the modern era. So I like, I could read that and say, Oh, I see what I see what she's doing here. Like this is a direct reference to all these other things. Like I really like this. Hmm. I think they reference how they got a lot of um, science and technology. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which is really cool. Uh, they were more advanced in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's that scene when they're all kind of, they're all sharing the knowledge with each other, um, mm. which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah, definitely, a, it's a reference. It's mm -hmm. totally a historical reference. Yeah. I, I just checked the page. They don't specifically say what country. It's just a very, like, yeah, kind of vague, like, Middle Eastern area. Like, uh -huh. like sort of, it's the Middle East, kind of like how Aladdin is in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But, like, it's not clearly defined in any way yeah no it's exactly that like the, the original story of aladdin is like in the vague middle east but it's set in china for some reason yeah it's like it makes no sense from a modern point of view because you can say well that's not what happened in history like this doesn't fit all together but from a medieval european point of view like everything east of greece is the east and so they all just kind of runs together um but not in a not in a way of like, we don't care about what's east of Greece. It's just like, it's really interesting. We just don't know anything. It's interesting though too, because despite it being kind of like vague and fictional, they do reference specific historical figures. Like I think they reference Aristotle. Mm -hmm. I'd really want to talk about this later because I thought this was really interesting, but they also reference Jesus and Satan. So I think one thing that's different about this series is that a lot of the time in fantasy stories, there isn't directly Christianity. There's uh, a version of it or an allegorical version or something that kind of alludes to it. 
and I might be wrong, but I think in this story it is just Christianity, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, my, I, again, I think it really fits with the source material where, like, if you read uh, Grimm's um, uh, fairy tales, like, they're a lot of them are very religious, and mm. those are either the stories that tend to not be repeated now, or like that part is kind of like we don't want to talk about that. We're going to talk about, talk about this part instead. And like, if you're really interested in that source material, like that is like taken whole cloth and put into this book, and like all woven together in an in interesting way. So I think that for me, that was the the biggest appeal of this book is that kind of stuff. Hmm. Oh, it's yeah. really interesting to hear everyone's different takes on it, especially how it's just like it's just not your thing. It's not my thing. It's, it's cool. It's so fine. Funny. I think it's a like I said, really well put together. You know, I, I completely respect that. It's just funny because it's like so nichely like my thing. Yeah, <laughs> and like the like just complete opposite like random stories. <laughs> Love it. Love when people are just hanging out. I don't know if we should like. Do a little bit of a plot summary because I don't sure, think we sure. have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Castle Waiting sort of centers around this castle that they set it up, uh, up as sort of Sleeping Beauty's castle, and then that castle and its location has sort of faded away into myth. But people in the land still believe in it as a safe haven for people who need it. And this woman Jane has gone on a journey to reach castle waiting and uh she's pregnant and after she reaches the castle she has her kid and uh he's not fully human and it sort of follows her and the different residents of the castle and they each kind of tell their backstory i've got rackham i think who is kind of the overseer of the castle this spindly bird man and uh there's sister peace uh mm -hmm. yeah peaceful who uh is the bearded nun She's probably one of my favorite characters. And there's, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name, but there's a mom and her son, Simon. Um, mm -hmm. And then the old ladies who uh, were Sleeping Beauty's uh, attendants, um, but Sleeping Beauty left when she woke up. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works. If you're, the, if you're the princess and you marry the prince, you go move to his, like, wherever he's from. Yeah, and she said she would write, but she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, patience, prudence, and plenty. And there's the doctor, mm -hmm. who is very strange and has wears a plague mask. And... The horse. Yes. Uh, Chess. 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 Oh, and um, uh, Hank Henry. Yeah, Henry, the guy with the iron yeah. heart. Yeah. Iron, iron Henry. Um, Henry was really interesting. Like, is he actually from... A fairy tale? Okay, cause his yes. story felt very fairy tale-ish, but it's not a fairy tale I know. Yeah, um, I think it's one of... Like, it's been years and years and years since I've read any, like, Grimm's fairy tales or anything, but I believe that is uh, okay. a fairy tale. Hmm. Fitting the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I... I uh, or sorry, do we get to the end of the plot here? That's as far as we get. Yeah, um, like, I think the main backstory that we spend a lot of time in in this book is the uh, sisterhood of St. Wildefortis, uh, yeah. which is the bearded nun, uh, co co uh, what's the word? Coven? No, co I was going to be like Covent, but I don't think that's Convent. 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 There we are. So close. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, <laughs> and uh, how Sister Peace finds her way to the convent um, with her friend Clintonistra. Mm -hmm. yeah, that was the part where like, it felt like that part could have been shorter. Like, Not that I didn't want it to be there because I thought like there were a lot of really interesting things in that story, but like 
part of what I like about this is like seeing all the different characters, like how did all these different characters get here? And like, we, it seems like we spent an awful lot of time on just one character, not even just her, but like the people she knew as well. I was like, and we don't even mm -hmm. have, um, what's her name? No. Queenie, right? Uh, yeah. Like, we, like she's not even a character who lives in the castle. And yet we've got like her entire backstory. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because like that sub arc was probably my favorite part of the whole two oh, book okay. series. Well. <laughs> like that was like that was the only line where I'm like, I could get behind this. There's okay. a really interesting dynamic here with like these women who have beards, but they're like, let's embrace this and mm -hmm. like how does the world treat this specifically? Mm -hmm. So it's like that plot arc was probably my favorite. And then like it was funny because like every time you broke out of it. And it's like, what's going on? We're trying to fix the roof or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> this is like literally what happened too. They had to fix the roof in between. No, it is. You're, literally. Like, you're waiting it to go back. Literally. But it wasn't even the roof later, right? Yeah, it was like fairies. Henry points out like it's only raining indoors, so it's the fairies. <laughs> so the roof wasn't even yeah. broken. Yeah. Yeah. It's Old Man River. Which I did. Old I, Man River. Well, that was right. Yeah, yeah. I did enjoy. I did enjoy that little twist. Mm -hmm. um, I know. Too. I see. I think like. Uh, yeah, all the little little background things are quite nice. And the whole idea of, like, a story within a story within a story really reminded me of, like, Sandman and some of those sort of, like, fantastical fable elements that uh, he put in, like, Neil Gaiman put into that book. And so I really appreciated this whole idea that, like, I'm reading this story about Castle Waiting, and now I've gone into this story from Peaceful about her life, and now from there we're into the story of Queenie, who's, like, a, like a friend of hers. And it's like, you're you're like three three layers in now and i i thought that was really fun you know, um yeah sorry. go ahead no no go ahead. sorry to interrupt um it's great that you brought up another example of that because i think it's referencing something else as well which is a uh, thousand and one nights oh. and they actually talk about shaharazad because in that story that's how it's structured right uh you have the storyteller telling a tale and then in that tale you get into another tale and another and like you're five layers deep and it's just incredible it's like mm -hmm. you get lost um, mm -hmm. you get kind of disoriented, but it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and that would also, I guess that would also be another medieval reference. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of that. It's a good connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, I'm a big fan. I did actually get a bit lost though, but <laughs> I, I wonder if it was intentional almost. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed, I enjoyed kind of getting lost in castle waiting at points, but I just found that there were times where it, it did sort of drag a little bit for me. And I, I don't know. I, I, sort of feel like I appreciate, again, like, the spirit of some of the things that they're doing. Like, there's this horrible carnival owner, and they escape from him, and, you know, he, he's set up as this really awful, awful character who's, like, abusive, and he beats his partner, and he's stealing money from everyone. But, I don't know, they still sort of, like, deal with him in a very compassionate way, where they sort of scare him off without physically harming him, and, uh, like, later there's this whole plot with the, the miller who's, like, got his serfs that he's abusing. And they trick him in a way that he gets what he wants and they still free the serfs. And it's like he still leaves perfectly happy thinking he's, everything's great for him. And, it, and like, everyone, like, everyone kind of gets what they want. And I did kind of appreciate that, like, it's, it's a story where, like, it's always looking for compromise, looking to, like solve a problem without like hurting someone and I appreciated that but I also just found myself thinking that like it just sort of also 
didn't feel very high stakes. And mm -hmm. it's not that I needed things to get really, like, violent or characters to die, but, like, I just never really believed... Like, when they're scheming the Miller, I'm just like, oh, well, this is going to go off without a hitch. Like, I just... I think I wanted there to be a fly in the ointment, and not necessarily, like, something really terrible, but just, like, a little bit more adversity, where, like, maybe the... Miller found something out and kind of changed his mind or they had to like pull a last minute change in there like it just didn't feel like there was enough struggle like everything just went too easily all the time was kind of my feeling um yeah I mean I don't disagree that but uh for me like I thoroughly enjoyed that and sometimes mm. it's nice to read read things where things do work out okay in the end but I'd, I'd also like to bring up that I think that there is one storyline that overarts the whole book that does have high stakes and does mm. like have like an element of fear there and that's Jane escaping from yeah. her husband mm. like that's that really to true. me there is no part of that that doesn't scare me on mm. a certain level because she and we still haven't gotten into it in either of the books but the shadow of the fear that's there like mm. is is really present like there's a scene where she's leaving an estate on a horse with with her horse i think it's when her horse is stolen she's like we've we've been through so much together and it flashes back to her leaving this estate and she's she's being beaten yeah. like she's got these really um visible bruises on her face and she's like i can't go back here and yeah. she has to leave and that it was very like chilling and, mm -hmm. and there is another scene that kind of echoes that which yeah. is when chess first shows up and she like loses it she's like really afraid that it is uh, probably her ex coming who has pursued her. And, like, that was real fear. And it's like, I agree mm -hmm. with you. Like, that was a real overarching story. And mm -hmm. one of my biggest frustrations is, like, kind of similar to you, John. It's like, we don't get enough. Uh, mm -hmm. We spent a long time with the sisters, and we didn't get into the core of the story with Jane. So it's like Jane's story is still very ambiguous and mysterious. And after two books... It still is very ambiguous and mysterious in a way that it is the most gripping through line and isn't really well served. I feel like the we'll talk more about this when we do our next episode, but I feel like the second volume kind of got closer to that, where it's uh, like we don't necessarily learn a lot more about Jane, but where at least I think at least I felt like we were closer to, or we, it was more evident that at some point we would know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, this isn't going to stay secret yeah. for the whole book. This is something we can expect in the future. And I feel like at least we started to get closer to Jane as a person. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if like if you want to talk about book one, it's like we get very little. It's it's just set up at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think volume two felt more focused for the plot. It's tough though. I mean, I I, I mean again, I like slice of life, and this was like slice of medieval life, and so I did sort of, I enjoyed sort of the the ambiance of this comic but I did definitely I sort of felt like the the drama could have been turned up a little higher and maybe maybe seeing more of of Jane's subplot might have helped with that and again it's like it's a delicate balance because yeah. like I don't want it to just turn into like a, a Frank Miller comic or something yeah, exactly. like, it, it might just... it might just be a matter of taste <laughs> yeah. because yeah, I mean... like I, I like really high intensity high emotional comics yeah. as well where it's like that I know that doesn't jive with other people yeah. and it's like yeah. it's it's 
it's mm. it's just like a line. Yeah, it's like yeah, where yeah, you put yeah, the yeah. dial, right? Yeah, like I, I know, um, Jeff, your background and like the media that you like to consume is very different yeah, from my yeah, own. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. so like you're probably going into it looking for something different than yeah, I would be. Absolutely, absolutely. And I and I will say like ultimately, especially in terms of like something to like as an introductory comic, I would say this is a great introductory comic for a young reader because I think uh, it actually has a lot of really cool things like like the bearded women storyline where it's like, hey, being a bearded woman, it's kind of fun. Like, <laughs> you know, and maybe we don't need to always like solve things with our fists. Maybe we can like outwit people and like maybe like compromise works. And, and like these are really good values. And I also really enjoyed there's a consistent theme I felt throughout this book where uh, people that were concerned with money uh, were the bad people and they were the unhappy people and they were the people that often things didn't work out well for. And I did really enjoy, especially like the Miller storyline, I just really enjoyed how much of like a proto-billionaire the Miller was. Like he's just this vapid person who's obsessed with status and it's like he doesn't care about people. He just cares about his big pile of gold. And so like they give him his pile of gold and he leaves and they're like, will that make him happy? Probably not, but like, at least he's out of our hair. Uh, I really appreciated that kind of message. You know, I think that that's like a, that's a good thing for 13 year olds to read in a comic. <laughs> oh yeah. I think that would be like an awesome time to read. This would be uh, between 13 and 16. I loved it even at the time. But you know what's really interesting? Cause I'm, I'm hearing like these different opinions. And when I was younger, when I read it, I felt the same way as you guys about the second part of the book kind of dragging and like kind of wanting to get back to the cast and the low stakes um and i think my tastes might have changed because it was very different but it's also the second reading mm. so it goes by quicker um but yeah it's great to hear those that range of opinions either way i'd still definitely recommend it um i think it's ethically a beautiful book like oh, we've, yeah. been, we've been talking about like conflict resolution and i had this really funny conversation at work with a coworker about how Disney villains always fall off a cliff. <laughs> because there's, cause there's this desire to kill the villain. Yeah, but they, you don't want to have the hero kill the villain because then they're mm-hmm. a murderer. But it's very hypocritical, right? Yes, oh, no, exactly. No, the solution yeah, yeah. is still murder. Like, it's uh-huh. still this bloodlust. Oh, no, it's guys, like they can't think... Oh, go ahead. He just, he just, your villain has to have his hidden gun... So then it's self-defense, and that's uh, fine. Jeffrey. <laughs> what? No, just... Sorry, I just, it's, it's a, a Hollywood trope. It's I'm sorry, thing. I'm yeah. sorry. Anyway. No, <laughs> keep going. It keep went going. right over my head. I'm sorry. But um, I think what's one thing that's just brilliant about this book, and it has a great lesson for kids, is that the Miller, I think, actually does get what he wants, because he... In the, in the story, you can buy your way into court. So if you have mm-hmm. enough money, you can become mm-hmm. a noble. Yeah. And so they actually give him the real money. He oh, takes yeah, the money, yeah. he goes to court... Yeah. He becomes a noble. So they, they yeah, managed yeah. to solve this this conflict without killing anybody mm-hmm. and without yeah. foiling the villain's goal, which I've yeah. actually... I don't think I can think of a single different example that does that. Yeah, no, no. I, I love that. And and I, I love that they put the little footnote on it, though, like, so he's gotten his way into court. Is that going to make him happy? <laughs> and it's like, I kind of was like, no, he's not going to be happy, but he's now he's stuck because now he's bought his way into court. He can't get out of it now. Yeah, no, no. I really <laughs> like that the solution to that isn't revenge. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter whether the Miller gets his way or, or not. What matters is what happens to the people he's abusing. So as long as they're okay, it's fine for the Miller to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, that's so different from so many other stories. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to be clear, like that, I think that was great. 
and it's it's like I I would love to still resolve things that way, but I just sort of wanted it to be more difficult to accomplish. <laughs> okay, mm, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> and it's funny because like now thinking about how this connects to fairy tales, like it does feel like a, a fairy tale ending, right? Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of it's it's nice, and I, I did like that story with the Miller. It's like I, I liked the whole section with the, the sisters. Like I didn't mind too much diverting it because it's like it's like I care about these characters. <laughs> mm. um, have any of you or are any of you familiar with the idea of the heroine's journey? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, do tell. I to, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to get this right. So if I miss anything, please correct me. Because I, I read an, a great article about this once, but it's been a long time since I read it. So um, the hero's journey, I think most listeners are going to be familiar with. It's basically Star Wars. The, the heroine's journey is different in that it's not about our main character going out on an adventure, finding what they need, defeating whatever they need to defeat, and returning home victorious. It's, uh, it's about the main character being sort of thrown out into the world with nothing, uh, and then having to build a place out in that world and attract other characters to that place to sort of build a household kind of thing. So um, the, the the premise of this, the reason that this is a thing with a label on it, is that this is sort of a trope based on uh, different gender roles in like medieval Europe, where the hero like is supposed to like fulfill a certain gender role, and then the heroine is supposed to fulfill a slightly different gender role, but there's still like an adventure attached to that. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this story is like a type of heroine's journey. And because this is a story that I don't see nearly as much, I find that interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's true. You could say, like, Castle Waiting is quite empty. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least when Jane arrives, and then over the course of the books, like, more people do end up mm-hmm. in Castle Waiting, mm-hmm. at least temporarily. Yeah. And a lot of it, uh, the heroine's journey seems to be about, like, building a family of choice. Like, these are people who don't know each other ahead of time, but they come together and they, like, become a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the concept of family of choice is something that we don't see explored too much in other books, and I think it it deserves more story time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I think you actually I felt that more in volume two with the doctor, and maybe I'll save that for the next episode. That's for but, next episode. But there's I have more to say on that next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, so just want to add. Um, I think in the. It was the Goodreads uh, book description. It says that it's a story about being a hero in your own uh, home. Mm. So I feel like that ties into this branch mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really cool observation, though, about the heroine's journey. I, I've never heard of the heroine's journey, and I think that sounds awesome. Well, I think I just have been reading the wrong books because I've only run across it, like, a couple of times. Yeah, I was going to say, can you think of any other examples? Um, the uh, the example that I know best is uh, there's a fantasy writer, Lois Bigmaster Bujold, uh, who I've re- read a few of her books. Some of them I like better than others, but the, the article that I read that, I was about, that was about the heroine's journey focused specifically on her books because they fit the trope so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they there is this like consistent thread of sort of the binary opposite of the hero's journey where like the the heroine has to like fulfill this sort of like traditional role but in like a fantasy storytelling structure i'm sure i'm not explaining it as well as i could be but we'll we'll get we'll get comments don't <laughs> something <you> something <laughs> to think about anyways uh one okay. of the things i'd like to return to maybe um for this episode and we can maybe explore it next episode too is uh 
one of the things I really appreciated in the art was um, her sense of landscape. Mm. And there, I remember in my reading experience of this book, just having these panels where I'd stop and just look because um, the way she draws landscapes is really beautiful and like trying to figure out how she did that and like how can I as an artist like cope with that a little bit or like try to tap into that because and they weren't even big panels necessarily like there could be a small panel that's just like treetops in the castle and the sun going down and somehow she would be able to capture that really well in just black and white like there are no half tones there's no like gray wash or anything like that yeah. in this it's just black and white inks there is um, a lot of wonderful etching in this book oh, like yeah. if you're a fan of good inks there are some good good inks <laughs> oh, in this book yeah like again fantastic draftsperson like mm -hmm. just amazing uh, amazing inking in this in this whole series and fantastic backgrounds yeah so i was going to build on what you said uh kay in that not just the landscapes but the architecture really struck me like the sense of um, like there was a lot of architectural detail, it felt really authentic, but it also, what struck me the most, which I think is the most challenging, is it felt really consistent. Oh yeah. Like I, when I was in a space, I could tell I was always in the same space as it repeated through the work and like I never felt disoriented within that space. I could tell kind of where I was in this kitchen or this foyer or this bedroom. Uh, that's really, really difficult to achieve as an artist and it's uh, really, really well executed. Especially in this with like bare stone walls yeah. and like mm -hmm. basic furniture, you know. Um, I wonder how much planning had to go into into it to, to make that happen because like I'm sure that there's more architectural planning involved in this than I would typically do. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that I don't do any, but, um, but yeah, no, like you're right. And also the, we're only given sort of vague hints about the time period that this is set in, but from what I know about that time period, the architecture is incredibly consistent. Like this is the right architecture for the time period that it says it is. Well, you know, if the architecture was wrong, that would just ruin the entire reading experience. Some of us have <laughs> Yeah, well, I think for, for the key demographic, it might. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, yeah, very well done. These are fantastic. Um, the castle itself is, I think, really well realized. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. It feels like there's uh, such a... It, like, you have a sense of... Like I could, I feel like I could almost sit down and draw the castle layout from memory mm. after reading this book because it's so well transmitted from artist to reader. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's something I'm not sure I've ever experienced in a comic before. Mm. Mm. Like that, that cohesive of a sense of place. Like I, we see it sometimes on like a city scale, but it's it's funny because like you get a good sense of place when it replicates something real like a mm -hmm. real city where you've been to mm -hmm. and then every once in a while you come across a comic where it's like oh wow this captures toronto really perfectly or like oh i've been to this part of europe and the mood here is like spot on but for like the physical <laughs> building that we because like we spend the entirety of the work in this one complex uh with the exception of the times where we go into other sub stories right but it's very well developed because like we move around that space and it's, it's inhabited. Right. So it, it is really interesting to me that it's, mm -hmm. it's so well mm, consistent. The consistency is really, really hard. Um, my one criticism of this work, uh, which I would feel, I feel like it has to be brought up is 
And I, I think it's something that in America we're not as like conscious of, but the Romani people are kind of used as a fictional race almost, or like sort of like in line with, you know, like there's there's dwarves and like things like that. And I feel like that is maybe being approached, you know, from the kind of like idea of fairy tales and stuff instead of like, ah, you know, this is an actual race of persecuted people in um, Europe. Um, so I feel like, hmm, gotta, gotta kind of mention that. Um, mm, yeah, I, I did notice that. I think there's one point where they refer to them as Roma, but then like just the one time and every, every other time they're not used by their less appropriate name. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, this was also the 90s, um, but I also don't feel like necessarily that would be, it's, you know, different today. Like, I think that's still something, uh, especially in America, we don't really think about because it doesn't really affect mm -hmm. us as much, but... No, I mean, that's that's definitely true. Like, um, I feel like people in Europe have, like, generally speaking, very low level of understanding of, say, First Nations issues because... Yeah their only exposure is from the media we make here, which is all terrible. Um, and I feel like it's the reverse with the Roma that in North America, everything we know about them is from media, which is all terrible. So we don't actually know, like people often don't think about them as being real people at all. So and I, yeah. I think it's worth, as North Americans, I think we need to be maybe even doubly diligent to sort of stamp that out here because we're repeating lies that other people are telling and we're still culpable in those lies. Yeah, that's a perfect example because like uh, there was a situation not too long ago where a German board game came out that had some really inappropriate First Nation stereotypes in it. And it's like, as the map, right? You know, like mm -hmm. they don't have exposure to those issues and we don't have as much exposure to the Roma issues, mm -hmm. but they should be, you know, taken as seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you for pointing that out. I did. Mm -hmm. I, I spotted it as well. Yeah, it's the book is straddling this really interesting line because there are all these fantasy elements, but then there are these real groups of people that are featured in it. Like there's Christians, like specific Christian sects, and then there are um, you know these characters from like the East that are making specific historical references, and then you have this group of people that are they are real people and they're people today as well. So sometimes in this like blended fantasy setting where you can run into these issues um, and I think yeah it's definitely worth bringing up and looking at do you think it would be better if the uh, quote-unquote gypsy characters were maybe like a fictional people like of a different name or if they were handled differently like what do you think a good way to handle it might be in the situation um, I mean one solution might be to have some Roma characters who don't fit stereotypes because mm -hmm. the only characters we ever see like perfectly fit the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I think they talked about like the baby trade at one point mm. and like horse thieves. <laughs> if you, yeah, I mean, if you, I Which just is... feel like if you change the name, that might still not work because it's sort of like you're doing the same thing. You're just sort of flipping the name. Yeah, people yeah. are going to figure um, out what you're doing and like come to the same conclusions. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think maybe John's suggestion of just sort of having Roma that work against those stereotypes might be the best solution. It's um, funny because it's almost addressed in the second book as an analog with the with the dwarves, right? Mm. Who are, I forget the term that they use that's preferred in the book. Hammerlings. The yeah. hammerlings, that's yeah. right. Thank you, John. 
Uh, so, like, the Hammerlings do come across, like, someone who is calling them a dwarf, and they have this, like, small discussion of, like, oh, well, some people use this word, some people think mm-hmm. it's okay, some people it's not, and mm-hmm. so it's, like, it, again, like, this was uh, a discussion that was not happening at the time that it was uh, produced, but that might be a way to, you know, it's, again, like, this is a real culture with real people, and uh, I think, John, that's a, a good tactic that you just suggested, of having them as whole characters and not just stereotypes and certainly like avoiding replicating the harmful stereotypes that are brought up in the book something one should be keen to avoid yeah Yeah, actually i would say i i I found it a little jarring the first time that they referenced i think it was like france or england or because i originally was reading this (laughs) i'm like oh we're just in a mystical fairy world and everyone's just sort of from parts obscure that we don't quite define and then they're like oh yeah i'm here from france i was like oh wait so france is real (laughs) and there's dwarves and like whoa okay this is like a little bit weird you know yeah that's right france is real i forgot about that (laughs) (laughs) that's your takeaway from this podcast everybody france is not made up yeah france is not a fictional country (laughs) no see i like that though i like that that seems very in keeping with the, the source material too where you have like like there's kind of a vagueness. Like if you're, uh, um, if you live in a village in medieval Europe, you you've heard of France, but you haven't heard of everywhere. You've maybe never even seen a map of what Europe looks like. So someone could come along and tell you, oh yeah, there's dwarves living in that mountain. And you're like, okay, sure. I've never seen one, but there might be. I've never seen France either. <laughs> so. I think that still happens today. To be honest. Um, should I, we're on, we should maybe make time for episode two. Yeah, we so. need right. to wrap this up. Time to wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> Castle Wedding, volume one. Um, should we do our, like, would you recommend it? And then do our yeah. sign outs? Yes. So for me, if you come across a younger reader who is really into history, that's the type of person I might recommend this work for. Uh, I don't think I can broadly recommend it. I think I I would broadly recommend it. Um, definitely a young reader into, who's into history. I think that's a great idea. But I'd recommend it to people as well who um, just love art or who are interested in making comics. Um, the art's absolutely incredible. And then story-wise, I find it really interesting because it, it, it starts off with some tropes and then it subverts them. I think there's thematically some really interesting things happen, happening with like how they handle conflict. Um, so I would recommend it. I think it's really good. Uh, I think I'd recommend it. I think I would also be prepared for the eventuality that the person I'm recommending it to doesn't end up liking it because it's not for everybody. But it also seems like it's it might be hard to tell who it's for ahead of time. Like, I'm not sure that there are people that I know specifically that I would definitely not recommend it to. Except for Angela, but that's because <laughs> that's because I told you. It's like <laughs> yes. I don't know if you yes. would have been able to tell. No, Angela, fans. Angela, you should like this. You should read it again. <laughs> that's how it works. Um, I yeah, I don't know. I think I'm kind of in Angela's point of view. I guess I would say I would recommend this to a young reader. If you have a 12 year old child, give them this book to read. I think they would actually really like it. And. Uh, if you know someone's really into fantasy uh, and fables in particular, uh, I think it would be actually kind of fun to read some of the original fables and then read this like right afterwards. I think that would be kind of a fun, fun pairing. 
<laughs> and obviously, I would recommend this book because I recommended it to all of you. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm Kay Gross. You can find my work at kagcomics.com, K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. I just put out a little romance comic because I watched like 10 romance movies in December and decided I was going to make my own. Um, so you can find that on my website or whatever. And... Uh, I'm gonna just like shout out this book I'm reading right now. I'm reading a biography of Louisa May Alcott. It's like the one that comes up if you Google it, and it's very interesting if you like reading about people who are obsessed with utopias and forming utopian societies in the 1800s. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of thing. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm Jam. You can probably find my work at angelamelic.tumblr.com I, by the time this podcast launch, I will have released a new short story Ooh. called It's Okay to Sploot, and that's definitely going to be on Tumblr, so that's what I'm going to shout out. And I'd like to shout out a Amazon TV show that I watched uh, recently called I can't remember if it's The Amazing Mrs. Maisel or The Fabulous Mrs. Maisel. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, thank you. Uh, it's about a housewife in the 1960s who becomes a comedian, a stand-up comedian. Huh. And it's a, a really, I think, sharply written show. And it's uh, I had a, a lot of fun. I kind of, I was always champing at the bit to watch the next episode. So wow. I, I enjoyed it. I just finished marathoning that. Yeah. And yeah, I'll second that. That's yeah. a great show. <laughs> I gotta watch that. Um, my name's Jess, and you can read my webcomic, Liquid Shell, at liquidshell.tumblr.com. Can I shout out a movie? Yeah, sure. go for I, it. I just watched It Came From Outer Space, the 1950s uh, sci-fi, and it's so cute. <laughs> it's the cutest thing. They try to make you think that it's uh, a horror movie. It's not. It's, it kind of reminds me of Castle Waiting, actually. Everyone just has the sweetest intentions. It's great. It's on Netflix. I'm Jonathan Dalton. You can find my work at phobos-comic.com. Uh, and I am going to shout out Tiger Lung by Simon Roy, because I just read it. It's about... I don't know. What, I'm not even sure how, if I can describe what it's about. It takes place in the Ice Age, and it's weird and cool. I read that a long time ago, and I think that is the best summary I could give as well. <laughs> so I'm Jeff Ellis. Uh, you can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. Um, and I don't know if this is going to get out in time, but I'm going to shout out uh, Sparks by Nina Matsumoto and Ian Boothby and David Dedrick, who are three talented local comic artists. They are going to be doing a book launch for their book, Sparks, uh, at Kids Books on Thursday, March 8th at 7 p.m. Um, so I'm not sure if this will get out in time. but It will. It will. Uh, okay. Then you should go to that, and you should buy Sparks, because it's about two cats that pilot a robotic dog. <laughs> the cover yes. alone. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> the Trade Raiders was presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening!